Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Is everyone a moron, or are you just lousy at communicating? How does your focus on saying the right thing screw everything up? And what can you do to feel less anxious in your interactions? Legendary actor and best-selling author Alan Alda is here to discuss why smart people can be bad communicators and how you can develop true power in your interactions. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Alan Alda. You may know him as the award-winning actor, writer, and director. He's also the founder of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. He's also the author of several best-selling books, including his latest, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. Uh, Thanks so much for talking today, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So, you know, we know you through your work on stage and screen, but you're also very active in the science community. So I'm, I'm curious what has, what's inspired you to study and write about communication and science? Catch us up there. You know, it's interesting. I was interested in science as a little boy, as, as many people are. Probably humans, when they're that age, are natural scientists, curious and in my case, looking for things around the house I could mix that would possibly explode. <laughs> so, I, 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 to me, that was what science was. I had a little table where I did what I called experiments. But I, I didn't study science uh, formally. I've, I've, it's just the thing that's most fun for me to read and has been since I was uh, in my early 20s. But when I was asked to do the science program on PBS called Scientific American Frontiers, I didn't realize how my interest in science would lead me into an interest in communicating science, because here we were doing a show where we were presenting the work of scientists who were really on the cutting edge. And I realized as we started to really cook with the show and and do episodes that were really engaging, uh, 
that what I was doing was using all my training as an actor, all my experience as an actor, to make a connection with these scientists so that it didn't look like little lectures, because it wasn't little lectures. I wouldn't let them lecture to me if I couldn't understand them and if there wasn't personal contact between them, I'd grab them and shake them until we had some kind of personal contact. Sometimes they grabbed me. So that that was a shock. One, one guy in China said, Alan, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of the assumption there if you're a smart person that somewhere that you'd be a good communicator, but it, it seems like you weren't going to let if you didn't understand it, you knew the viewer wasn't going to understand. Is that what yeah, you were getting? Exactly. And I realized that there was a connection between us that went two ways once it was established. They were more fully present and I was more fully present. And the real people behind our personas, behind our public personas, our official personas came out. So there was a human exchange. And I began to realize when I left the show after 11 years, I wonder if scientists could be trained to do this without somebody like me standing there pulling it out of them. Mm -hmm. It seems like we make an assumption that there's that people just don't like our ideas. But a lot of times, I mean, how often do you think it's just that we don't understand? I think it's it's the thing that ought to be settled first. Uh, before we decide that people don't like our ideas, maybe they're not getting it. Maybe they're misunderstanding it. And what and 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 you raise an interesting point, because this isn't just for scientists. I realized while we were teaching thousands of scientists that it worked for other people. We began uh, altering it a little bit so it would work for doctors and nurses. And when doctors and what we're establishing with with this training is empathy, which we do through and this unusual thing of, of uh, putting them through improvisation exercises, who's the result of which is to make you more aware of the other person and let them in. And the more we did that, the more we realized that it was really for people beyond scientists and doctors. Scientists themselves were saying things to us like, this training has saved my marriage. Mm-hmm. And so now we, we're, we're, we're beginning to train people in corporations. We're training the people in leadership, teamwork. We found that scientists have better teamwork in their lab when they take this training. And that same advantage in teamwork works for everybody, and no matter what kind of team you're on. And it's so the book is really about the book you mentioned, if, if I understood you would, I have this look on my face. That's really about how anything complicated can be made clearer if we're concerned not so much with the message we have to, to make to the other person, but more importantly, how the other person is getting the message. Are they getting it? What interests them? What, what, why does this matter to them? If we don't know what those things are in, in both in, in advance and in real time, we're giving up a tremendous tool to to connectivity, to teamwork, to leadership, to simple communication between spouses or lovers or parents right. and children. You know, sometimes sometimes it's it's difficult for a scientist to explain quantum mechanics. And sometimes it's just as difficult for a spouse to explain to a partner 
how they feel about what's been happening lately. It's just as complicated. Mm -hmm. And, and the same rules I think apply. I think what matters is it does matter what you say. Of course it matters, but too often we worry about the best way to say something rather than how it's going to land. And I was, I was talking to a scientist last night in front of a, a table full of people. And I thought it'd be fun for him to explain his work just for five minutes. And I could see as he struggled to make it clear, mm. he was thinking about the best way to say it. And as a result, it was a little disjunctive. It was one thought sort of didn't attach itself to the next in his mind. He was making these connections that were, were simplifying what he had to say, but it wasn't becoming easier to understand for those of us listening. And if he had had a third ear on how we were probably getting it, it would make a big difference. It's so powerful because I can imagine going through life and just thinking I'm surrounded by morons. You know, these people just don't get it. But really, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's my responsibility in this. And I think that's the part you're speaking to is like, I've got a responsibility to, to check in and see if people are following this and also be able to occupy my perspective, but also take the perspective of others. I'm curious what you think the, because that guy that's out there right now thinks, thinks the world is to blame, right? I'm just surrounded by morons, but what, I, what if it's him, right? What if, what's, what do you think well, is I, the biggest I, mistake that we're usually making when we're screwing up communication that we're just not aware of? I can tell you, I know from experience how hard it is to accept that responsibility that if the other person doesn't get it, I have to look to myself first before I start saying things like pay attention or listen to what I'm saying. Yeah. They're doing the best they can. And I know how tough it can be to say, wait a second, I must not have taken into account what they're going through. What as just as you said, what's their perspective? And this matters whether you're a boss talking to an employee or an employee talking to a boss. You need something from the boss or you're receiving criticism, you know, constructive criticism from the boss. Mm -hmm. If you don't think about where it's coming from, what the boss's point of view is in all of this, you're in great danger, I think, of taking it the wrong way, becoming defensive not collaborating with the boss on what the boss is trying to drive at. Maybe the boss doesn't even see it the right way. So now you have a chance to help him see it your way. But that doesn't mean you, you launch into a speech where you defeat his position. You play to his position. You see what matters to him. We're all in business to help the company grow or whatever the, whatever the, whatever the common ground is. Right. If we don't see ourselves as possessing common ground, it's really hard to make any headway. Well, I can get that, right? I can be in a curious place or I can be in a defensive place. And I'm, I'm aware I usually am in a defensive place. You know, if I really slow down, I want to make sure that I look good. Nobody attacks me. I get it right. Um, being curious about where the other person is, that's foreign. That's a, that takes practice. That takes skill. Um, to say, yeah, I wonder what's going on for this person. I wonder where they're op occupying things. But what I'm getting here is that this is where we become really powerful. Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned empathy earlier, and that's a word that doesn't get thrown around a lot in boardrooms or council meetings. It, we may hear it in couples counseling, 
right? When our marriage is, is in trouble or, or in, it, we're, we're bringing challenge there. So um, it seems like the empathy though gets associated with being soft or weak. And I'm, I'm wondering, is, is that true? Is, is, is becoming more empathic going to make us soft or weak? I think no. It's a very, very strong no to that question. It doesn't make you soft or weak, as long as you understand it in the following way. This is how I use the term empathy. Mm-hmm. It's not having compassion for another person. It's not having sympathy for them. It's simply knowing what their point of view is. What are they feeling? What are they thinking? Where are they coming from? If you understand that, you can use that as a tool to do all kinds of things, to explain what you have to explain, to sell them something. Because without that, let's take selling. Without that, without that sense of where they are, what they need, what they value, you could be selling them something you want to sell, but you may not be selling them something they really need. They may want something, but what they really need in all fairness and all honesty is something you have, and it may not be the thing you make the biggest profit on, but if you can connect to them on what they really need, you do have a sale and you probably have a customer for life. I think it's an old principle, but what's novel about it is this concentration on really ramping up the ability to read the other person. In the book, you, you describe a process of naming emotions that's having a big impact on their other's ability to relate. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that process a bit, because it seems a little, it seems strange. Well, there's no question that one kind of bold, simple way to know what somebody is feeling is to ask them questions. But if you if you ask questions and you're still not convinced that you're connecting with the person, and even if you are convinced, it doesn't hurt to go further. And read the expression on the face. The techniques that we've developed in these workshops that we run involve training people in improvisation exercises. And that really ramps up your empathy. But not everybody can go to that. And even I've been to thousands of them. And I need sometimes a booster shot. My stress levels get high. It's not as easy to read another person. So I tried to find exercises I could do all by myself during the day. And I must say, I pretty much always do this since I figured it out. And it seems to make things a lot better and a lot easier. I just in chance encounters with people, any encounter that takes more than about five seconds, I spend it to a great extent trying to figure out what they're going through. What are they feeling? And if I can't figure out a feeling, I find that just paying attention to their face, to their hair, to their eyes, what color are their eyes? What color is their hair? Are they wearing jewelry? I let them in. Now, this sounds obvious. You're talking to people and you see them. That, that sounds like about as obvious as you can get. But I can't, I, I, I'm just shocked at how many people talk to other people not looking at them, not even looking at them. And I'm equally shocked to see myself looking at somebody while I talk to them and not really see them. If I look away for a moment from somebody I'm talking to about something important and I think, what color is this person's eyes? I haven't even taken that in. 
So that means I'm, I'm not really letting them in. I'm just, there's a kind of a blur where the face ought to be. So I find the more I let the other person in, the more connected I get. And something I think changes on my face because very often I see something change on their face in response. So it's something to try. And there are, you know, about a dozen other things you can do to try to build up your empathy. But one of the things that matters is wanting to, wanting to understand what the other person's going through, what their point of view is. But it's not, it's not compassion. What you said is very important. It's not not going soft on the other person because some people use empathy against other people. I don't recommend it. Con artists use what you're feeling against you. They can read you very well. Bullies use it against you. Some politicians use it against you. They know how to read what the people want to hear and they give it to them. And, and some salesmen use it against people. It's not, it's not a good policy. In the end, I think it's self-destructive. But it's a neutral tool. And if we think of it that way, then we don't have to be afraid of it turning us into softies. Well, I just want to kind of go rewind a bit and just actually get the tool. So if, I, if I'm interacting with somebody, I just really take a look at them. I slow down. I take a look at them and, and just say, what are they feeling? Is that right? I ask that question and just look for clues based on their face or whatever I'm gathering from their appearance. Is that it? Is it yeah, well, that's what I've done and I found it helps me. Yeah. I just remember a time where I was watching something. There was somebody standing next to me, and I can't remember where we were watching, but I was like, oh, my gosh, you'd have to be blind to miss that. And with the guy next to me was blind, and I was just, you know, it was just one of those, like, man, I should have been paying more attention. (laughs) (laughs) I know an actor who was doing an after-theater speech, a curtain speech to the audience, and he started to really take off on a guy who was, had his eyes closed in the front row, <laughs> yelling at him for sleeping through the, through his act. And the guy was blind. And it, I mean, you, you have to allow for certain possibilities in the other person. Yeah. They may not be thinking or in the same condition that you think they're in. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things that I run up against um, with people, especially when it come to, comes to relating, is that guy that thinks he, relating means having something to say that he's got to do a lot of talking and it can be exhausting to be around these folks. Uh, we can get into what feels like kind of a, a captive audience scenario. And, and if we pull back and we seem to become more disinterested, the guy ramps up and he's got to talk and talk and talk in order to maintain connection. Um, I'm just wondering if for that guy that's out there that, that, that does find himself anxious in these kind of interactions and feels like he's got to have a lot to say, what would help that person? And you start to relax a bit more and, and, and find a more effective way to communicate. Well, I think it's, you're really talking about how to listen. Probably what you're talking about, the kind of uh, person who's, instead of listening, doing all the talking. Uh, you know, like some, I've, I've been in this situation many times where somebody says, tell me about that thing you do. And I start to talk about it and they start telling me about it for 15 minutes. <laughs> That's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's interesting that to see, hear their take on it, but it's not what they asked. They asked, they wanted to know my version of it. But uh, it probably comes, that probably comes from a certain amount of insecurity. And also this, maybe this stereotype that uh, we men have been tagged with, which is uh, we have the solutions to problems rather than hearing more about what the problem is. We, 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 I, I, I've noticed that that's 
been true for me in many cases. I've leapt in with a solution before I even knew what, what, what was the problem. And sometimes the problem is the person just wants to be heard. Mm-hmm. So the solution is to listen. But the anxiety that we feel sometimes keeps us from listening. That anxiety, I think, can be abated or held down a little bit. If we really think about what we've been talking about this whole time, which is what's going on in the other person. Something happens when we ask ourselves that question, what's going on in there? And what happens is we put the focus on them instead of on us. So we're not under this stressful desire to come up with something. We, somebody says there's a problem or they're, they're upset or they're launching into a tirade. It's not necessarily our job to do anything about it until we know more about what's happening in the other person. Then we have a better chance of serving that other person or serving ourselves as well. As you go through the world and you see this breakdown of communication, I imagine you you spot it everywhere. I'm wondering how many times a day you smack your forehead as you see simple communication problems that are showing up as massive divisions in in our society. What's, what's What's that experience like for you? Well, it's frustrating. I, you know, I, I really long to talk to people I don't agree with so we can have some sense that we're fellow people, regardless of our disagreements. It's, it's harder and harder to do because people don't want to talk to somebody as soon as they get the first clue that they don't agree. It's so much more fun to work it out and to find out, and even if you can't work it out, to say, I respect you as a person. You came to a different conclusion. If we have to work together on this, if we're on the same team, on the same committee, and we have different ways of looking at it, the team is going to flounder if we don't find a way to work together, to feel whoever has something to contribute Mm -hmm. should be listened to, that together we might find a third way that works better than the first two ways. So there's there's real incentive to pay attention to the other person, to respect the other person, listen to them, figure out where they're coming from. Uh, Interestingly, with all of that incentive, you'd think it would be self-reinforcing, but for some reason it isn't. We all have this capacity and we don't exercise it enough. So maybe our self-defensive mechanisms that are useful to us most of the time when we're faced with an enemy come into play inappropriately when we don't need them to. Mm. Yeah, that's the part that I feel if I'm defensive, then I'm not going to be curious. I don't really want to hear where you're coming from. I don't want to hear your perspective. I've got to protect my own. And I just wonder if, if that's at the root of it, where we're just in such a defensive state most of the time based on whatever we're taking in or who knows, but we're threatened. And so we don't have curiosity anymore. Yeah. And we don't necessarily want to uh, improve what we're doing now. We're not going to get all successful all by ourselves. It's going to be us and what we can, how we can benefit from other people. Yeah. You know, you're, I, I get that you're somebody who's done a lot of studying and taken in lots of information um, but you said something in the book. Um, well, let me just phrase this, you know, cause I'm a recovering personal development jackass and we're the types of guys that, <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> we're just devouring tons of information and, and 
ideas as, as like, this is the thing that's going to protect us. But what really comes down to is we got to live our own lives and we got to have our own experiences. That's what I've, that's what I've learned that, that really transforms. And, and you echoed this in the book. You said something like, uh, tips are intellectual and often mechanical. They don't transform you, but an experience transforms you. And I, I'm wondering if you could just kind of explain that a bit more because so many people are you know, isolating themselves taking in lots of information, putting their earbuds in and kind of, you know, devouring media, but not collecting experiences. We're afraid to go out and collect experience. We're afraid to screw up. Uh, and so, I, you know, at your stage of, of life and in, in having access to tons of information and the people that have this information versus experiences, I just, I wanted to learn more about that. Well, I personally have not benefited an awful lot from TIPS, T-I-P-S, uh, <laughs> in, intellectual formulations, do these three things and life will be glorious. One, right. two, three. Well, they usually don't work for me because how do you how you do them matters an awful lot. You can take a tip and do such a rotten job with it that you can be really annoying. Or you can go through an experience that gets you more able to connect with the other person, which the tip wanted you to do, but doesn't do it as an intellectual directive. So that's why we found we've trained almost 10,000 scientists and doctors and dozens of people in business so far. And what we found is it's okay to reduce the experience to a tip, an easily remembered tip. But if you don't have the experience first, it's A, not going to stick very well and B, not going to be as easy to do. Got it. What's the thing, though, I'm not going to ask for a tip here, but if, if the guy <laughs> listening to this is on a treadmill right now <laughs> yeah, and, he's, yeah. and he's struggling, uh, he doesn't feel like people are understanding him uh, or vice versa, wh where's the start? If we had to bottom line something for him today, what would that be? I know this is a broken record, so excuse me, but if you can find some way to start with the other person, asking questions, really deciding to try to figure out what they're what they're telling you, where they're coming from. To figure out your best message is not the heart and soul of communication. To figure out how you can communicate what you wish you could communicate to a specific audience at a specific time and place. Even if you're writing to them and you're not there in their presence, to keep your focus on them and not on this great thing you have to tell them. And it should be as good as you can formulate it, but one size doesn't fit all. So that, that, that it, you know, when I reduce it to that, it does sound suspiciously like a tip, but that's why I spend a lot of stories and a lot of time in the book trying to express ways that I found help me get there. Mm. And, and I hope that other people invent their own ways. Yeah, I like, I like that. It's a, it, what if it was an experiment? What if that guy just went out and started asking more questions today instead of every, you know, if he could pivot every time he thought about what should I say now, he just thought of the question to ask. What's the thing he's genuinely yeah. curious about and yeah. see where that goes. Who is this person? What, what, where, where do they come from? What, what can I tell from their language, from the sentences they construct? how how educated they are how how can i tell from the way they weigh thoughts how much they rely on evidence who, who is this person 
And what do we share? What are the things we have in common? What's our common ground? What do we value similarly? If we can lock into those things, then we have a real opportunity to have a conversation with the person, to have a communication that goes both ways. We're not dominating the person with what we have to say. We're building on where we are together. Nothing like that. That That's fun. That's, mm. that's an enjoyable encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, you know, I got to bring a MASH thing in. I grew up watching you on MASH. And when I was a young song, songwriter, I wrote a song about your character, Hawkeye, that wanted to beat the, beat the hell out of Father Mulcahy. It was my... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was my fancy pants, sophisticated take on the struggle between the rational and mythical worldviews and glorification of bloodshed in the name of God anyway. So y- your work has been influencing me since I was a kid, and I've, I've loved reading this book and, and getting to know you a little bit, and I love that you're still going strong. So thanks so much for doing this work. Thank you. It's been fun talking with you. Thanks so much. Uh, Alan Alda, his latest book is If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. Go check it out. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.